Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now beginning chapter 15. I'm going to do the first 15 verses in that chapter. We are now in the context of the Last Supper. Chapter 14 gave Jesus' farewell discourse in which he said, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, my Father's house, and many mansions. No one comes to the Father but for me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Philip says, Show us the Father. Jesus said, You see me. You've seen the Father. Whoever believes in me shall do the works that I do. And then in the last half of that, chapter 14, Jesus talks about he's going to give the Holy Spirit the advocate to those who believe in him. And this is where we are. Now, Robertson says that chapter 15 and chapter 16 were discourses given by Jesus to his disciples on the road to Gethsemane. Whereas Jameson Fawcett and Brown says this is just more of the last discourse given at the Last Supper. Well, let's face it, nobody knows exactly when this was given, but we know the general time between the Lord at the end of the Lord's Supper and before Jesus' crucifixion, before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. So we'll start now with verse 1 in chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vineyard keeper. Well, the first thing we ask is, what's a true vine as opposed to a false vine? Well, vine was often used in the Old Testament as a symbol of Israel. And Jesus contrasted himself with that by saying, I'm the true vine. In other words, Israel is the false vine, the fake vine, and I'm the true vine. I'm the real one. This is the NIV Study Bible's take, and I think that's right. To show you that vine is a common metaphor used for Egypt, uh, used for Israel, excuse me, let's look at some scriptures, Psalm 80, verses 8 through 16. You uprooted a vine from Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it, you cleared a place for it, it took root and filled the land. Let's talk about the Exodus. The mountains were covered by its shade and the mighty cedars with its branches, it sent out sprouts toward the sea and shoots toward the river, sprouts toward the Mediterranean Sea and shoots toward the Euphrates River. It's, this is talking about the establishment of Israel after the Exodus, and it's done under the aspect of a vine metaphor. Verse 12 in Psalm 80, Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass may pick its fruit? The boar from the forest tears it and creatures of the field feed on it. Return, God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Take care of this vine. The root your right hand has planted, the shoot that you made strong for yourself. It was cut down and burned up. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. It's talking about God taking care of the vine. And, of course, the vine has a lot of trouble because of its sin. But there's your metaphor. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile field. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So now residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. Me is God. Please judge between me, God the Father, and my vineyard, which is Israel. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? Now I will tell you what I am about to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It will be consumed. I will tear down its wall and will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, and so on and so forth. So there, Israel is... is, is likened to a vineyard, not exactly a vine, but a vineyard, which is a similar idea. Jeremiah 2.21, I planted you a choice vine from the very best seed. God says, I planted you, Israel, a choice vine. So Israel's a vine. How then could you turn into a degenerate foreign vine? So Jesus is saying, look, forget Israel. That's the old Israel. I'm the new Israel. And my father is the vineyard keeper. What does that mean? That means the father takes care of Jesus and makes him produce fruit. How does 
how does Jesus produce fruit? Well, he produces fruit because he is going to start the church, and they're going to be the branches of the vine, and they're going to bear fruit by being attached to the vine, as he will talk about further on in this in this passage as he continues on with the metaphor of the vine. So the type is Israel, the vine, and the antitype is Jesus, the vine. Now it could be that Jesus is a true vine as opposed to a wild, barren vine, wild, barren vine that doesn't bear fruit, but Jesus is a true vine that does bear fruit. I don't think that's what it is, though. I think he's talking about Israel. I'm the, I'm the new vine. I'm the true vine. Forget Israel. Look to me. We're starting over here, guys. John 15:2. Every branch of me that does not produce fruit, he removes. Now Jesus is going to talk about how he's going to produce fruit. He said, my father is the vineyard keeper. What do vineyard keepers do? They make their vines produce fruit. And so God the father is going to make God the son produce fruit. And how does he do that? Well, first of all, he gets rid of branches that don't produce fruit from the new vine, Jesus. What does that mean? What kind of fruit that's in Jesus that doesn't rem- uh, that needs to be removed by the Father? Well, the first problem is it sounds like the branch in me. It sounds like that's a Christian that the Father's removing. It sounds like the people are losing their salvation. That's not what it means. This is a reference to judgment, as the NIV Study Bible says. Options is how they might be removed: people that were offended by persecution, so they leave, or people that fall into false doctrine and leave. Or people that become guilty of scandal and get excommunicated. Or people who stay as a tear, a fake, until they are burnt up at a harvest. A fake wheat until they are burnt up at the harvest. That's John Gill. Or maybe they're removed by death, according to Barnes. The first four ideas were from John Gill, and the last from Alfred Barnes's commentary. So, what this means is, is that God has got to prune his, as the Reformed people say, his visible church, the church of people who profess Christ, but people that are in the church that don't really believe in him. They're fakes. They're hypocrites. On the other hand, in the last part of verse 2, he prunes every branch that produces fruit. That's the Christians who are producing fruit, because if you're born again of Jesus, you are going to produce some fruit sooner or later. He prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. Now, pruning is, of course, cutting back getting rid of the obstacles to our growth. And, of course, that's a common metaphor that's used by Christians as we talk about how we call, how God causes us to grow, basically by getting out of our path the things that hinder our growth, that choke our growth. The world, the flesh, the devil, drugs, sex, alcohol, music, fame, whatever, vain philosophies. He gets rid of that stuff, and when he gets rid of it, we start bearing fruit in Christ. John Gill says the way he prunes is with afflictions and trials, temptations as he put it, or trials. Okay, that that'll do it. That that'll prune you. That'll get you. Turn, that'll turn you back to, to to God. So we see in verse two a contrast between the branches that don't produce fruit. Those are the bad guys, the fakes, the hypocrites, and those who do produce fruits. Those are the fruit. Those are the true Christians. Now, let's discuss this issue about the branches that don't produce fruit. It sounds like they're not saved. Well, now, it's interestingly, it sounds like they could be Christians who are saved and then got unsaved and lost their salvation. Well, there's some theological implications there. Obviously, it could refer to these false branches, all the Jews who followed Jesus for teaching and healing but never got saving faith that this is not referring to Jews. I think it is hard for me to say that it refers to Jews because it says all the branches who are in me. Well, the Old Testament Jews never were in Christ in any 
ostensible way. So I don't believe that's what it's referring to. I think Ellicott's right in denying that that verse refers to unbelieving Jews. So, although this is controversial, I think that these branches that get thrown into the fire are non-believing, or non-believing false professing Christians, people who join up with Jesus but who do not really believe in him. All right, let's talk about this. these unproductive branches that are removed in verse 2. There are basically three options. One is, as the option that I just finished giving to you, is that they are hypocritical, professing Christians who are not real Christians, and so they're removed from being from, from the vine. The problem with that view is it says every branch in me. How is a hypocritical, false Christian in Christ? So there's, there's your first, that's the problem with that view, the view I just gave you. The other view is that it's talking about real true Christians are removed by losing their salvation. Well, that's the Arminian view, and we're not going to give any more time to that because there's so many other scriptures that say you can't lose your salvation, that that's not going to fly. Now, there's a third view which says it's true Christians, but they're not removed by being removed from salvation, but they're removed from close fellowship with Jesus and the vine. They're, they no longer have close fellowship with. In other words, they're the so-called carnal Christian. Well, all of these views have problems, so let's, well, we've already dismissed the Arminian view, but let's take the hypocritical professing view, that this, these branches are hypocritical professing Christians who don't really believe. And the problem, of course, is it says, it says these branches are in me. How can a hypocritical Christian, a non-Christian who professes to be a Christian, how can he be said to be in me? Well, here's a couple of possible answers. One is that Jesus is referring to Judas. Remember, Judas has just been exposed at the Last Supper, has been exposed to the disciples as a hypocrite and a traitor. And Judas could be said to be in me in the sense that he was one of the apostles. So what Jesus is saying here, every branch in me, in other words, all my apostles that are in me that do not produce fruit, he removes. In other words, I'm removing Judas. And then the rest of you guys, I'm going to prune it so that you'll make, have more fruit. I think that makes a lot of sense. And that's tentatively now at least the, the view I'm going to go with. Now, there's another view that says it could be a backslidden Christian. He's removed from close fellowship with Jesus. I don't see why logically that can't be true. I'm not sure that Jesus meant that. I know that experientially it's true. We know that you, you don't stay close to Jesus. You don't produce fruit. You go out womanizing and doing drugs and all that stuff, well, you're going to be removed from close fellowship with Jesus. Verse 6, it says you're going to be burnt. Well, you can just say you were burnt with chastisement. doesn't mean that you're burnt by being sent to hell. So I think you could do... I've never seen people take that view, That's but that's I've, kind of the view I've leaned to in the past. But for right now, we'll just take it to mean that this is ref, Jesus is referring to Judas, non-believing apostles, a non-believing branch who's in Jesus and professed to be an apostle, but he was not, and he got removed. Fits the context pretty good. Now there are other theologians who say that, who who hold to the to the view that the branch is a false, hypocritical, professing Christian, is that it's referring to Jews. Actually, excuse me, it's not referring to false, hypocritical, professing Christians. It's refer, referring to Jews who don't profess Jesus at all, and they're going to be removed. This view says that fits with the context as verse 1 says, I am the true vine as opposed to the false vine. And of course, vine is an obvious Old Testament metaphor that refers to Israel. And so Jesus is going to remove Israel. He's going to get rid of them. 
and then he's going to prune the Christian disciples. He's going to, in other words, he's going to get rid of the old Israel and he's going to start with the new Israel. That has a lot of appeal to it. Two, the problem is, is how can you say that an Old Testament Jew is in Christ, every branch in me? Well, let me give you a quote from a 19th century Bible commentator named Hingstenberg. He says this, quote, The Jewish branch is primarily meant, as by the contrasted fruit-bearing branch, we are to understand primarily, primarily the apostles, the Christian church, having its germ in them, that even the Jews were a branch in Christ, the true vine, is as certain as that, according to chapter John chapter 1, verse 11, when he came to the Jews, he came to his own property. So the Jews, the Old Testament Jews, are said to be a branch in Christ. But the evidence that Jesus had primarily in view the Jews when he spoke of the branches not bearing fruit is found in the fact that the same thought recurs in verse 6, where the reference to Ezekiel 15 places the allusion to the Jews beyond doubt. In verse 6 it says the unbelieving branches are going to be bound up and thrown into the fire and burnt. Ezekiel 15.1 is, is a passage that, that refers to Israel as a vine, and the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood, the vine branch that is among the trees of the forest, and so forth. And it talks about Israel being the vine. Well, it seems to me that's sort of a stretch to say that the Jews are a branch in Christ. Uh, that's a stretch. I think it makes more sense to say it's Judas is a branch in Jesus in the sense that he was one of the apostles, and he got removed. Let me give you another alternate view of the I should I should say a corollary, I guess, to the view that it's really a Christian that's being talked about here, not a non-Christian, but it's not an Armenian view that says that Jesus removes the believing, unproductive, believing Christian out of the kingdom and sends him to hell so he loses his salvation. Not the Armenian view, but the view that says that Jesus, that, that translates the word removes which is iro in the Greek, and translates that word as lifts up, and so that every branch in Jesus that does not produce fruit, God will lift him up. In other words, he will encourage him to grow more fruit. This is A.W. Pink's view. I would suggest that that doesn't fit the context at all. Everything in this whole context is talking about bad stuff. You get down to verse 6, and that person is burnt. Uh, of course, then you have to flip from saying it's... a, a a fruitless Christian who's being encouraged in verse 2 to verse 6, a hypocritical Christian who's being thrown into the fire. That's A.W. Pink's view. I don't think it flies, but since it is a popular view, I think Lewis Sperry Schaefer also holds that view. I just thought I'd mention it, even though I don't agree with it. Verse 3 gives another way that God prunes every branch by the Word of God, because we drop down to verse 3. We read, you are, all, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And the NIV margin says there that the Greek for prunes also means clean. So the Greek for cleans also means prunes. So verse 3 could be read, you are already pruned because of the word I have spoken to you. So the word of God prunes us, gets rid of obstacles to our spiritual growth. So the idea of being in Jesus in the new vine is that we produce fruit. That's our goal. If you'll think about it, even in nature, everything has a goal. You know, you put a seed in the ground, it kind of wants to move up to its goal of producing fruit. It wants to grow the, the plant, and then the plant wants to grow fruit. That's the way God made it, made nature, and that's the way he made us. He wants us to produce fruit. So every good and decent thing you do for your brother or for some other person in the world is fruit, and that's what God meant for you to do. It's a good thing. Here's a scripture that's similar to this. 
is four verses later, John 15, 6. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. So all these false professors, these hypocrites, these people who think they're going to follow Jesus, but the persecution turns them away, people who don't, aren't really saved, they get thrown into the fire and burnt up. But on the other hand, the pruned Christian, the pruned branch, produces more fruit. Now, fruit is a common metaphor. In the New Testament, it symbolizes the product of a godly life, as the NIV Study Bible puts it. Here's some scriptures referring to fruit. Matthew 3, 8. Therefore produce fruit consistent with repentance. Matthew 7, 16 through 20. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, which is exactly what Jesus just said right here in John chapter 15, they're thrown into the, the, the branches are cut off and burnt. So you will recognize them by their fruit. So this, the idea is bad branches or bad trees in Matthew 7 produce bad fruit. Into the fire there go, the fire of judgment. Galatians 5, through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Ephesians 5, 9. For the fruit of of the light results in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Philippians 1.11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ as the glory and praise of God. So you see, that's our goal, is to produce fruit. It's all scattered all the way through the Gospels and through the letters of Paul. We're supposed to produce fruit, and Jesus will prune us, God, will, the Father, will prune us so that we do produce fruit and more fruit. Verse 3 of John 15, you are, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Now he encourages them. He says, look, you've been pruned. You're already pruned, as a matter of fact. How did you get pruned? Because of the word I've spoken to you. Clean means pruned, as I just said. The same Greek word. And you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. What word? It was not just one word. It's this whole ministry for the last three and a half years that he had been with them. The whole message of, message of Jesus, as the NIV Study Bible puts it. Word summarizes the entire message of Jesus. So the words that Jesus spoke made the disciples clean, made them pruned. So, you know, if that's one thing, you want to get clean, you want to produce more fruit, how about get into the Bible? The B-I-B-L-E. It's good enough for you and me. I say that in case there's any super spiritual folks up there who say that God speaks to them directly without using the means of the word. Two chapters early in John, John chapter 13, verse 10, Jesus said, to his disciples, this is before Judas had left at the Last Supper, he said basically the same thing, that they were clean because of the word that he had spoken to them. He said this, One who has bathed, Jesus told him. The him there refers to Peter. Jesus is talking to Peter. One who has bathed doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. Washing your feet means referring to when you walk into the world and have to wash your feet. But basically, you are essentially clean because you've listened to my word. Not all of you, of course, refers to Judas, who is not clean. Let's go to verse 4, John 15. Remain in me, Jesus continues, and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. And there's that union with Christ idea. In me means remain in union with me, and I will remain in union with you. Think about it. There's three, different, there's, there's three ways you can look at our relationship with Christ. You can take the 
Eastern religion way, the Orthodox way, where we're so tightly in union with Christ that we become deified and that we start taking on the nature of God. If you'll think of God, a circle with God's name in it, then a circle with your name in it, and you and you let those circles overlap each other, that's the Eastern you. That's the mystical view. That's getting where you actually become God, and I don't think that's right. The other extreme is when you take those two circles and put God's circle way up in the air and put your circle way down on the earth and you never hardly speak to him. He's just up there. The intermediate position is where you got two circles that intersect each other at a point. That means that we are tightly in union with Christ, although we still maintain our human nature and he maintains his divine nature. But at any rate, because we are so tightly in union with Christ, that's how we're able to produce fruit, because a branch cannot produce fruit by itself. If you think about a branch on a vine, how close is it to the vine? The branch is actually attached to the vine. It's not separate from the vine. It's attached to it. The sap, the water, the minerals, the nutrients come through the vine, and they go directly right down into the branch. And that's how the way it ought to be with us. All of the, the good things of God that are in Jesus flow right through him, right into us, because we are attached to the vine. We're attached to Jesus. We're in union with Jesus. That's why he said, remain in me and I in you. That's the context there. You're not going to be able to produce fruit unless you remain in him and he remains in you, which implies that Christians can walk away from Jesus. That doesn't mean they're not saved anymore. I just heard a story of a good friend of mine who got saved when he was eight years old. By the time he was in his teenage years, he was doing hallucinogens, selling drugs, and he finally said, you know, this is crazy. And he came back. He's been a dedicated Christian all his life. So, yeah, you can separate yourself from the vine and make yourself miserable, but you're not going to produce any fruit that way. You've got to be attached to the vine. As the NIV Study Bible puts it, the believer has no fruitfulness apart from his union and fellowship with Christ. Fellowship is koinonia. Union is koinonia. Union and fellowship with Christ. A branch out of contact with the vine is lifeless, as the NIV Study Bible puts it. Now, this is a great verse for those Christians who want to do great works for Jesus, and they love to use their intellectual, financial, and physical powers to build God's kingdom for him. They usually fail miserably. Let's go to verse 5 of John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Notice that that remaining in Jesus and Jesus remaining in us, notice how that's tightly connected with the vine and branches metaphor. So the idea is the branches are tight with the vine. The life flows through the vine straight down into the branches because they're hooked up to the vine. Notice this is a repetition from verse 1. Jesus in verse 1 of chapter 15 says, I am the true vine. And now Jesus says in verse 5, I am the vine. The repetition from verse 1 gives it emphasis. I am the vine. How can we describe this relationship of the branch and the vine? The branch being you, the vine being Jesus. John Gill says it shows that we have the same nature when it refers to a branch. John Gill doesn't say this. I'm saying this. When you look at a branch on a grapevine, what do you say? Do you say, oh, this is a branch? No, you don't say that. You say, hey, this is a grapevine. And you grab the branch and say, this is a grapevine. Because there's no distinction in your mind between the vine and the branch. That means that Jesus' nature is our nature. We have a new nature, the nature of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We are a new creation. And that creation, we are born again of the, of the, of the very nature of God. John Gill says we have a strict and close union. I've already emphasized that. He also says this, we, because we're in the vine, a branch that's in the vine, we have a communication of life, grace, holiness, fruitfulness, support, strength, and perseverance. John 15, verse 6. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch, and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, 
Now again we encounter the problem of what does the branches burnt refer to? Three options. Non-Christian false professor, that's the option I've taken that verse 2 stood for. Second option, Arminian option, it's talking about true Christians who lose their salvation. I don't think so. Third option is talking about a carnal Christian is being chastised by being burnt, not by being thrown into hell, but by just just by being burnt, by being chastised. I'm not going to go through those options again. I'll just say that I think he's referring to Judas. If anyone does not remain in me, like Judas did not remain in me, as I've just exposed him at the supper, he's going to be thrown aside like a branch and he withers, and we can apply that to, to any Judases that we have today, people who say they profess Christ, and then they don't. John 15:7. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. So here's a condition. Oh, ask whatever we want. That sounds real good. There's a little condition here. You've got to remain in Jesus. If you're so close to Jesus, you know how Jesus is thinking. His words remain in you so you know what his word is. That's the condition for you to be able to ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. That is the, condi- the condition that says that you ask according to his will and it will be done for you and that you do not ask amiss. That's a big reward. You stay close to Jesus and pretty soon he starts answering your prayers. Now when Jesus said, my words remain in you, He didn't say my feeling remains in you, my intimations or my suggestions, his words. So Jesus says his words are in the disciples. He also said in the two verses previous that he himself was in the disciples. He says in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him, I in him, I, Jesus, remains in him, the believer, will produce much fruit. So there's no need to make a rationalist mystical dichotomy. Too many Christians emphasize either the Word or the Spirit. If Jesus remains in us, of course, that's through the Holy Spirit. So see, Jesus is in me. The Holy Spirit's in me. That's fine. But Jesus also said, my words remain in you. And this I say this over and over again because Christians love to divide on this issue. It's not either or. It's both and. His words and His Spirit. Too much words and you dry up. Too much Spirit and you blow up. But both together, the words in the Spirit, and you grow up. Ask whatever you want. Of course, that's whatever's in the will of God, and it will be done for you. Jesus also said that in John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Whatever you ask. Of course, the condition is is that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask God, give me good success in robbing this bank. The Father will not be glorified in the name of Jesus when it's found out that a Christian robbed the bank. So... If you ask according to the nature and desires of Jesus, whatever you ask in his name, he'll do it. And, and the condition is you've got to ask something that will glorify the Father and the Son. Now here's an interesting idea. Jesus says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, the question is, is who does the you refer to? Well, Jesus is directly talking to the disciples, to the apostles. And, Adam, and Barnes, Alfred Barnes, the commentator, says that means that this promises only to the apostles and not to other Christians, unless the other Christian circumstances are similar to the apostles, and only so far as they possess their spirit. Well, I don't know what that means. We do possess the spirit of the apostles. He's called the Holy Spirit, and circumstances similar to the apostles. The apostles were in trouble all the time. Christians are in trouble all the time. We, Yes, we can ask what we want in Jesus' name. Of course, we can apply that verse to Christians who aren't apostles. John 15:8. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. He's still on the vine, the fruit metaphor here. 
by the and the fact that we produce fruit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, self-control, long-suffering, and so forth. When we do that, we are glorifying the Father. We're giving glory to God the Father. I just saw a clip of Ken Burns' country music documentary. Merle Haggard's talking about his Christian mama and how she never gave up on him and how she kept praying for him and kept coming to see him in prison. That gave glory to the Father because she had the fruit of long-suffering and endurance. And boy, if you had to endure a son like Merle Haggard, who spent, who was 21 and spending time doing life without parole, you would know what endurance meant. So, so that Christian woman glorified God the Father. And she was just a simple, poor woman who now is being seen all over the country talking about her being a Christian. Produce fruit for Jesus. Produce fruit for Jesus. And be his disciples. You're going to glorify God the Father. So God the Father is glorified by more than one thing, as the NLV Study Bible points out. The first thing that the Father is glorified by is the work of the Son. The second thing that God the Father is glorified is by fruit grown by Christians. Here's the first thing, the work of the Son. How does the work of the Son glorify the Father? John 13, verses 31 through 32. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. God is glorified in him, the Son of Man. Verse 32 in John 13. If God is glorified in him, if God is glorified in Jesus, God will also glorify Jesus in, in God himself, and will glorify Jesus at once. So Jesus glorifies God, God glorifies Jesus. There you have that union, that closeness. So that's the first thing that God is glorified by, by the work of the Son. The second thing is by fruit grown by Christians. That's what the verse 15, 8, John 15, 8 says. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. There's some other scriptures that say that too. Matthew 7, 20. So you will recognize them by their fruit. Luke 6, 43 through 45. A good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. On the other hand, produces good fruit. So that fruit right there is is produced by the goodness of the new nature in Christ. Those verses don't say particularly that God is glorified by that fruit, but this verse here in John 15, 8 does say this. When you produce much fruit, my Father is glorified by this. Now, some people say that this might refer to what happened, what Jesus referred to before in the previous verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, by this you will glorify the Father. Most probably it's referring to what comes afterwards. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Or it could be both, because they both go together. If your word remains in, if Jesus' word remains in you, then you're going to produce much fruit. So both of those things glorify God the Father. His Jesus' word remaining in you and all the fruit that is produced therefrom. We go to verse, verses 9 and 10 of John chapter 15. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. The first thing to point out by this verse is that Jesus, in order to show his love for the Father, kept the Father's commands. He says, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love, that is just like if you keep Jesus' commands and the Christian remains in Jesus' love. So the idea is Jesus stays, the Son stays in the Father's love by keeping the Father's commands. Likewise, if you want to stay in Jesus' love, you keep his commands. In verse 9, Jesus says, just like the Father loved Jesus, so Jesus loves the Christian, the apostle there, or the Christian. How much did the Father love the Son? Well, he, you know, that's inexpressible. That's unlimited. 
That's how much Jesus loves you. That's a love that we can't really fathom yet. I love these near-death experiences. I like to watch the, the good ones. And almost always they'll throw in there something about, boy, they felt so loved. They never felt so loved in their life. It's something they can hardly ex express in words and they've never experienced on earth. Yeah, Jesus loves you just like God the Father loved God the Son. That's a pretty big love. Now, keeping his commands is how you stay in Jesus' love. Remember the whole idea of staying in the vine, abiding, the branch stays in the vine, and Jesus is talking about abiding in me just like a branch abides in the vine. And like now he's talking about remaining or abiding in Jesus' love. It's the same idea. How do you stay close to Jesus? Well, you keep his commands. Once again, love is associated with actions and obedience, not mere feelings. You want to stay in Jesus' love and want to show you that you love him? Don't just say, oh, I feel so good about you, Jesus. No, you keep his commands. That's what Jesus likes. Look at the scriptures that say this over and over again. John 14:15. if you love me, you will keep my commands. John 14:21. the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I will also love him and reveal myself to him. John 14:23 through 24. Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my word. So that's another way of looking at it. You love Jesus, you keep his word. You want to show that you don't love Jesus? Go out and sin. That's how you show you don't love Jesus. Jesus doesn't like that. The word that you hear is not mine, but it's from the Father who sent me. All right, 1 John 2, 5. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is perfected. This is how we know we are in him. 1 John 5, 2-3. This is how we know that we love God's children when we love God and obey his commands. For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. You want to define love for God? Keep his commands. And his commands are not a burden. So that's, that's an idea that's very strongly placed in Scripture, impregnated in Scripture. It's there. It's everywhere. Let's look at this phrase, my love. If I have also loved you, remain in my love. That could be... Jesus' love for them, which I think is what it is, or it could be remain in my love in the sense of the disciples' love for Jesus. Remain in the love that you guys have for me. I don't think that's what it is. That's because of that genitive, the of, in the Greek that can be pronounced, the subjective and objective genitive and all that. You can translate it both ways, and you can't tell except by the context. I think the context here is remain in Jesus' love. Don't remain in our love for Jesus. Remain in Jesus' love. His love is going to be a little bit more secure than ours, I think. We go to John 15, verse 11. I have spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Now, joy is one of the characteristic notes of the upper room discourse. This discourse that we're talking about right now is in our double body says. This is in John 14, 15, 16, and 17. They call it the upper room discourse because they don't think that that Jesus was talking to the, to the disciples on the, on the way to Gethsemane like Robertson does. But the point is, it's this, the last farewell discourse here. Let me insert a note right here. It seemed strange to me why people would say this is a continuation of the Upper Room Discourse. I realize that the NIV Study Bible and Jameson Fawcett and Brown both have, apparently to, to me have said that. And Robertson said, no, this discourse was given on the road to Gethsemane. If you read John 14:31, the last phrase there in John chapter 14, last part of that verse, Jesus says to the disciples, rise, let us go from here. So it sure sounds to me like they left. So when we get to chapters 15 and 16, they're on the road. One of the characteristics of this discourse on the road to Gethsemane was joy. 
here's some scripture to prove, to prove that. John 16, verses 20 through 22. I assure you, you will weep and wail, but the world will rejoice. You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Is referring to uh, the resurrection. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. Again, he's telling the disciples, yeah, you're going to be miserable there for a while, but ooh, on the other side of that misery is going to be the joy like you've never had before. So you also have sorrow now, he continues in John 16, verse 22, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will rob you of your joy. He will see you again when he comes back post-resurrection. John 16, verse 24, until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will be received, so that your joy may be complete. John 17:13 Now I am coming to you and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. So joy 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 everywhere in the midst of all this sadness and all this grief. Jesus constantly refers to joy. And he says your joy may be complete, will be perfected. You're not going to have any better joy than that. Again because of the genitive problem here, how do you translate my joy, the joy of me? Does that mean Jesus' joy in the disciples, my joy? I think so. Or could it mean the disciples' joy in Jesus? That the joy of me means the joy that the disciples experience when they follow Jesus. No, I think it's talking about Jesus' joy is put into us. We share in his joy. John 15, verse 12. This is my command. Love one another as I've loved you. Now, I've already read you four other verses in, in addition to this one where Jesus says that this is the love of God, that you keep his commands over and over again. I read, yeah, let's see, maybe... I read five other verses that say that. Three in the, well, there's four altogether in the book of John and, and two in First John, in the first letter of John. So that idea is clear, is that this is Jesus' command. Love one another, that's clear. Well, Jesus' command, excuse me, this is how you love God is by, is by keeping his commands. And then this is his command that you love one another. So the logic here is, if you want to love Jesus, you'll keep his commands. And his command is that you love one another. So if you want to love God, you better love one another. That's how you show that you love God, by loving one another. Now, I know Christians are not lovable in general because human beings in general are not lovable. I know that there's some delightful people out there, delightful Christians out there. But you get close enough to anybody and pretty soon they are unlovely because they have not been glorified yet and they have not been completely sanctified yet. This idea of loving the disciples, again, which is a way to show that you do love Jesus also, was also expressed in John 13, verses 34 through 35. Jesus is speaking, I give you a new command to love one another just as I have loved you. You must also love one another. You must, that's a command, you must love one another. By this all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How will people know that? Because people don't normally love one another. The whole history of the human race bears that out completely but then all of a sudden you see christians loving one another i've seen it boy i've seen it and it is quite attractive and people are drawn to that you want to witness to people love your brother that's a good way to witness to people let's talk about what adam clark or what jerome the fifth century catholic scholar famous guy translated the vulgate let's see what he says about john and his idea of loving the brother quote this is jerome now okay in his extreme old age, when he used to be carried to the public assemblies of the believers, talking about John, his constant saying was, little children love one another. His disciples, wearied at last with the constant repetition of the same words, asked him, why does he, why is he, why does he constantly say the same thing? 
Because, said he, it is the commandment of the Lord, and the observation of it alone is sufficient. <laughs> Love one another. That includes unlovable Christians, folks. I am almost scared to say it because I feel like God is probably going to test me in it as soon as you teach something. You know, God tests you in it, and I'm telling you, telling you there are some Christians that are absolutely disgusting. And they do disgusting things to you. And you have to forgive them. And then you have to go beyond forgiveness. Then you start praying for them even though they disgust you. And then after a while you will realize I don't love their sin. But I can get over their sin. I want them to do better. And I care about them as a Christian. As a believer. Verse 13 in John 15. No one has greater love than this. That someone would lay down his life for his friends. Again Jesus is given the ultimate example of somebody that loves somebody else if you die for them. And I think what he's saying, why did he bring it up here? Because he's getting ready to lay down his life for his friends. And then he's going to jump from there to say, you know, your friends now used to be slaves, but you're going to be friends now. So he's, he's getting ready for that, which is the next verse, next couple of verses. And now he's saying, look, you, want, you need to love your brother. Well, look at my example. Look at the example. I'm getting ready to die for you. If I can die for you, then you can lay down your life for your brothers. Now, of course, you could take that. Most people don't die for their Christian brothers, but we do suffer for them. We do. We bear things for them. So this is the extreme example, which then proves the lesser examples. Our brothers are our friends. We should lay our lives down for them. Once again, love is shown to be action, not mere feelings. Laying down your life for your friend is, that's how you show your love, not mere words. Oh, I love you. I love you, brother. I love you, brother. Jesus is pointing out how much he loves his friends because he's about to die for his friends, as I just said. The NIV Study Bible says that too. Now, this verse shows that Jesus' workers, his disciples, were also his friends. They were his laborers in the vineyard, but they were also his friends. John 15, verses 14 through 15, Jesus says this, You are my friends if you do what I command you. So you want to show that you love Jesus? You keep his commands. And you want to show that you love, and, and, what, are, and what is one of his commands? that you love one another. In verse 14, if you do that command that you love one another, that's how you prove that you're friends of Jesus. So that's how you prove you love Jesus is by loving, by keeping his commands and loving his, loving your brothers. That's how you show you love Jesus. And it's also how you show that you are his friend. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And of course, I command you to love your brothers. 15, I do not call you slaves anymore because a slave doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I've heard from my father. In a master-slave, a human master-slave relationship, the master tells the slaves, do this, do that. doesn't say because I've got a party coming, you need to cook this food. or He doesn't have to say anything. He just says, do it. And the slave does it. Well, that's what Jesus was basically doing to his disciples. He was saying, do this, do that, because they didn't understand anything. But now he's elevating their status to that of friends. He said, I've made known to you everything. I'm telling you all about the Father's will, that I'm going to die, that I'm going to be resurrected, that you're supposed to love one another, and so forth. I'm telling you everything I've heard from the Father. I'm giving you spiritual wisdom. I'm giving you spiritual life. Masters don't do that just to slaves. They do that to friends. So the disciples have been elevated in their status. They have had a promotion. Now they are friends and not slaves. They used to be slaves. Let's look at the scripture that says that. John 13:16 I assure you Jesus speaking a slave is not greater than his master and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him he's referring to his disciples Matthew 10 verses 24 and 25 a disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master it is enough for a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master if they call the head of the house Beelzebul how much more the members of his household 
Luke 17, 10, in the same way when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are good for nothing slaves, we've only done our duty. So Jesus used the slave metaphor a lot with his disciples, and now he says, but now you're not slaves anymore, you're friends. And think about that, that means we are friends with the God-man who created the universe. We're friends with the God who created the universe. We're his friends. We can talk to him, we can have conversational prayer with him, like, I don't like this situation, Jesus, please help me. Now let me finish this audio by repeating what I said about verse 14. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. In particular, what was he com commanding them? That they love one another. That was the previous verse. So you're my friends if you love one another. And with that exalted sentiment, we now conclude our discussion of the first 15 verses of John 15. We will continue with this discourse, this upper room or last discourse or discourse on the road to Gethsemane. We'll continue with it in the next audio and I hope you tune in for that one. I hope you enjoyed this one. Take care.